Hello and welcome to the Indian Ocean World podcast. My name is Philip Gooding. I am a postdoctoral fellow at the Indian Ocean World Centre at McGill University. For this recording, I am thrilled to be joined by Professor Moss Stern, who is a professor in the Department of History at the University of Pittsburgh, where she is also the director of the World History Centre. Having earned her PhD at the University of California, Berkeley in 2003, Professor Mostern has gone on to write several important books and articles, including her first solo authored monograph, Dividing the Realm in Order to Govern, The Spatial Organization of the Song State, 960 to 1276 CE, which was published in 2011 and distributed by Harvard University Press. For this podcast, however, we are discussing her most recent book entitled The Yellow River, A Natural and Unnatural History, which was published by Yale University Press in 2021. Professor Mostern, thank you very much for joining us. The Yellow River is an incredibly ambitious book, especially for its temporal depth and for its interdisciplinary nature. It covers the entire Holocene and it incorporates sources from across the natural sciences and humanities. My first question to you, Professor Mostern, is just to ask how you began to approach this long-term history of the Yellow River. What did you aim to achieve when you first undertook it? And what are the book's key contributions? So this book really came out of two different simultaneous threads in my thinking that converged together on this book. One of those was that as I was finishing my first book, Dividing the Realm, which you uh, mentioned in your introduction, I knew that I wanted to continue doing some of the same things methodologically that I did in that book. And the key thing that I wanted to continue to do was to write a spatial history. And by spatial history, I mean the history of how people and territory, people and geography, people and landscapes, place and space have mutually constructed one another. And that I wanted to do so as I did in Dividing the Realm by developing and analyzing a spatial data set and making maps. But I wanted, I knew that what I wanted to do was to take that into a sort of tangible, physically existing landscape. So Dividing the Realm is a book about the evolution of political geography during the 300 years of the Song regime. And I wanted to do something about kinds of geographies and landscapes that were physically visible to people and where human changes to the landscape were ones that were physically visible in the landscape. And that was taking me in the direction, of course, of environmental history. And I came to realize as I was finishing my first book that some of the changes to the landscape of political geography that I wrote about in that book in fact, were ones that were occurring as a result of floods and changes in course on the Yellow River, and that that was something I was not really well equipped to handle. So that's what sort of moved me in the direction of this book. From a very different direction, I was quite influenced by the fact that at that time, I was living in semi-arid, seasonally flooding central California. I'm now based in Pittsburgh, but prior to that, I spent 13 years on the faculty of University of California, Merced in the California Central Valley. If you've been following the news of this month's rainstorms in California, you might have seen that Merced, the town, is one of the places that has been um, quite affected by flooding. 
And living in Merced, I came to realize how intensively managed a landscape needs to be in a situation where it's water politics, it's agriculture, it's relationship between seasonal wetlands, mountains, snowmelt, um, an alluvial plain, a delta, an ocean. All of those things are extremely complex and in contemporary California, very, very intensively managed. I mean, with through sensors, keeping track of water levels in canals and reservoirs, for instance, to, you know, an inch or a quarter of an inch. And so from the on the one hand, I was starting to realize how much this landscape of uh, medieval, early modern China that I was interested in had been influenced by water politics. And at the same time, I was living in an environment where water was a frequent, passionate, high stakes conversation around me day after day. My office looked out on a landscape of canals and reservoirs and managed water. And so um, those are really the two big influences that came together to produce the book that I wrote. And I guess in the in the course of answering the first two parts of your question, the first part of your question, I've also pretty much answered the second part of your question about what the book attempts to accomplish. And that's the answer, is that humans have intensive relationships to complex water landscapes. Um, human society is profoundly influenced by those water landscapes um, and uh, those riparian landscapes. And in turn, humans also quite dramatically change the riparian landscapes with which they interact. Fantastic. I really like the, the idea of bringing your own experiences into studying something. Um, you define your, your, the perspective you take in your book as a sediment-centered approach that accounts for the whole of the Yellow River Basin. Could you, for our listeners, explain the meaning and methods of this approach and discuss how it is useful for environmental history, especially for the environmental history of the Yellow River? Yeah, sure. So there's, at this point, a pretty large bibliography of books of river history. And almost all books of river history that I'm aware of, other than my own, focus primarily on the alluvial plain of rivers. And that's understandable because the alluvial plains are the places that are flat, that are well watered, that are amenable to agriculture, that are amenable to transportation, along which dense populations of people live and build cities and move around and have high density kinds of social organization. So it makes sense that that's what water histories tend to focus on, what river histories tend to focus on. However, rivers are not just their alluvial plains, right? From the point of view of environmental history, rivers are the entirety of their watersheds. Rivers are basins, and they are the topographical features, the landscape features within which any drop of water flows to a common place in an outlet in an ocean, right? Uh, one of my favorite phrases that I use in my book is from a um, landscape architect by the name of Anthony Asiaviati, who talks about rivers as being sediment sorting machines. 
And basically, rivers are not um, simple. There's another line line I really like from a um, historian named Dalip Dakunha, who um, says, you know, we think of rivers as simple lines, but rivers are not lines. Rivers are zones of activity. Rivers are the entirety of their watersheds. And one of the kinds of ideological work as well as engineering work that people do is to construct rivers as lines when they are not lines, right? And so what that means on the alluvial plain is that rivers are always prone to flood and to change course, right? They're very active landscape features. And what it means upstream, this idea of the sediment sorting machine, is that rivers are basically fundamentally acts of gravity, right? So a river is a landscape feature that draws moisture and any kind of entrained organic or mineral material from higher elevation to lower elevation, right? You pour water and it runs downhill, and that's what a river is. And so a sediment-centered approach is really leaning into those insights and saying that instead of just looking at what a river is doing on its alluvial plane, we need to look at that whole sort of universe of what gravity is drawing downhill from higher elevation to lower elevation within an entire river basin. What that means specifically for the Yellow River, uh, which is the world's most sediment-laden river today and has been for at least a few centuries, is that the Yellow River has a really distinctive course that passes through a region called the Les Plateau. So it originates on the sort of northern part of the Tibetan Plateau and flows from there to this region called the Les Plateau, basically centered on the on the modern Chinese province of Shanxi. And um, the Les soil is very, very thick, 30 meters or more thick in most places and has the characteristic that when it is covered by ground cover, it is relatively impervious to erosion, but when the ground cover is removed, the particles of less soil are very small and have a variety of shapes. So it has a lot of sort of interstitial gaps between these tiny particles. That's why it is um, so good for drainage when it is covered with ground cover. It's great for agriculture for that reason, especially um, sort of early kind of Neolithic, Bronze Age, Iron Age agriculture, because it's really easy to work. But for those same reasons, it also, when it's dry and when it's not covered, it just sort of turns to clouds of dust and, um, you know, blows to gullies. And then when water comes along, that process of rivers acting as sediment sorting machines, water washes through those gullies and huge amounts of sediment are entrained into the river. And so the history of the flooding of the Yellow River on its floodplain really actually becomes a story of rising amounts of sediment, more and more of these particles of less soil traveling from the Les Plateau to the alluvial plain with consequences that are periodically cataclysmic for the people living on the plain. Let's talk a little bit more about that kind of cataclysm. Despite the long-term view um, that you take, 
You also highlight a number of key turning points which were cataclysmic, such as uh, major changes in the river's course, uh, which occurred, for example, in the 11th and 19th centuries. And I wondered how did these cataclysms, these inflection points, play into the narrative of the Yellow Rivers and Chinese history, especially when you think about the scale um, of a thousand years, of thousands of years? Right. Well, you know, one thing that focusing on those kinds of turning points in river history allows me to do, this is kind of implicit, is to rethink what the multi-century dividing points might usefully be in Chinese history. Chinese history, I think even more so than a lot of histories of empires and nations and states is one that tends to pivot on the rise and fall of particular regimes, right? The dynasties come and go. And that's something that Chinese historians, historians of China critique somewhat, but not really that much and don't always have good alternatives for. And, you know, we kind of collectively lose our language a little bit. We talk about the Tang Song transition, you know, rather than the Tang dynasty and then the Song dynasty, but that still sort of locks us into this world of regimes. And as environmental historians, as, as you and your listeners are, you know, we know that there are really significant ways of periodizing histories that don't have anything to do with political history, right? We talk about the uh, medieval climate anomaly. We talk about the Little Ice Age. We know how consequential those kinds of environmental um, turning points and sort of identifications of eras can be for more environmentally centered kinds of explanation in human history. And so that's really what I'm trying to do by pointing out these turning points in Yellow River history, which don't really always map very well at all onto political history. Sometimes they do. I actually surprised myself as I was writing this book in, in kind of, you know, I was so determined not to map my book on the standard timeline of dynastic history. And honestly, I learned as the book went on that it is consequential in, in some ways, but not always. And even when I'm thinking about political history in this book, it's often about significant policy changes or, or significant changes in the way that people engaged with the river, which did not always, rarely in fact, did they map onto regime changes. The biggest turning point of all in Yellow River history is a turning point from a an era of low flooding and low erosion to an era of high flooding and high erosion. And what's really exciting about the way that I wrote this book using um, data analysis is that I can pinpoint that practically to the decade, almost to the year, in the um, late 800s early 900s, there was a quite sudden change in the number of floods and course changes that were recorded in historical sources that also maps on to analysis by environmental scientists of soil cores that show rising rates of sedimentation, archaeological evidence. It seems really that all of the forms of interdisciplinary evidence converge on the idea that in the 800s, there was a quite sudden change from a low sediment and low flood era to a high sediment and high flood era. Um, there are plenty of other turning points to talk about, but that's the really dramatic one. And it more or less 
coincides with the transition from the Tang Dynasty to the Song Dynasty, but not exactly. Um, it actually comes surprisingly a few decades earlier than a sort of simple narrative of causality of, that derives from political and economic and military history would have put it. And that's really intriguing. Um, is that it sort of maps on to changes in uh, regimes and rulerships, but not perfectly at all. This kind of chronology you described here is absolutely fascinating because um, you're talking about a huge change in human environment interaction dated to the second half of the first millennium CE. And of course, human intervention in environmental matters and the changes that this is what is something that is very much of a hot topic. Uh, not just environmental history, but just in the social sciences, focusing on the environment as well. And this is associated, I think, broadly speaking, with the rise of Anthropocene studies and thinking about the Anthropocene and how humans have affected the environment, but also the uh, but and how that's affected the climate as well. But what is so interesting about uh, your book here is that you're making these arguments for periods that are much earlier than what are the usually accepted start dates of the Anthropocene and its derivatives, for example, the capitalist scene or the plantation scene. Thus, I kind of want to ask you, how does your work challenge the temporality or even the framing of the Anthropocene? Or how does a long-term perspective, which thinks about the whole Holocene as well, um, help us to understand more or even challenge the concept of the Anthropocene as a whole? That's a great question. And, you know, I, I feel like every conversation I'm in, every day that I wake up, I either think that the Anthropocene is a really terrific, fruitful and generative framing, or I think that it is, you know, useless, obfuscating, doesn't engage effectively with social power relations. So I wrestle a lot with Anthropocene. And I'm actually this semester, I'm teaching an environmental history class. And, you know, we keep circling back week after week to the Anthropocene and different possible start dates for the Anthropocene, uh, different terminology, right? The Capitalocene, are there better terms we can use for talking about this um, planetary scale human impacts on the environment than the term Anthropocene? These, I think, are all open questions, certainly in the in the wider literature and very much in my own mind as well. But to the extent I use the term Anthropocene, you know, I had a student actually just the other day in that class say there's the Anthropocene and then there's the Anthropocene, right? And I really appreciated that because we were talking about this in the context of, you know, John McNeil's Great Acceleration Framework and in terms of the likely 1950s start date that the Geophysical Union is zeroing in on for their formal definition of the start of the Anthropocene, and, you know, putting aside, at least for the moment, you know, whether that is a useful framework at all, there are some very, very good reasons, right, that, you know, all of the sort of the... Um, what do they call the hockey stick versions of graph after graph that show small, small changes. And then, you know, whoosh, after 1950, the rate of change in so many kinds of human impacts on the non-human world 
are um, absolutely quantitatively and qualitatively different than they have had ever been before. So I do want to hang on to the idea that something really significant happened quite recently in human history, but also at the same time that human impacts on the environment began very, very early indeed. And one of the things that I read in the course of writing this book that had some of the most profound impact on me was reading the work of a geoarchaeologist named Arlene Rosen, who studies the environmental impacts of very early agriculture, Neolithic agriculture. And one of the things that she discovered working in the Luo River Valley, the Luo being um, one of the major tributaries of the Yellow River, was that even with Neolithic kinds of agriculture, the human impacts on that fairly significantly sized river valley were sufficient to change the shape of the river valley from having been a sort of a U-shaped kind of typical glacial type of valley into a V-shaped valley, right, which is what happens when human activity causes erosion and, you know, the soil settles on the valley bottom. So humans have always impacted the environment. Of course, as I said to my students last week, so have beavers, so have ants and termites, right? In that way, looking at humans as having been landscape agents forever, for for tens of thousands of years, is one line of thinking. And we can absolutely, rather than, again, I guess this is a periodization question, is that rather than saying there's a period before human impact on the environment, and then there's the Anthropocene, instead to ask kind of questions that sort of arise more from a, a, a subtle and long-term political economy approach that basically says, you know, in any era from deep in the Paleolithic until the present, right, what has been the scale and the impact of humans on the non-human world. And I hope that my book, by taking a long-term approach, but absolutely, I very intentionally sort of ended it at a kind of pre-industrial, pre-fossil fuel moment, but still taking a long-term approach, tracking through what the intensity of human impact is on this river basin over the centuries. Uh, that's really interesting. I like this idea of kind of one Anthropocene, then the big Anthropocene. That's a very interesting take. I mentioned that that your kind of focus on the 8th, 9th century provoked a number of questions. So I want to ask one more about that as well. This is just actually from a historian's perspective and about the documentary record. You make a really convincing case that the 8th, 9th century was a particularly important uh, changing point. But one of the striking things about your chronology as well is that there were significantly fewer disasters recorded during the era of division between the Eastern Han and the Shui dynasties in the middle of the first millennium CE, and also following the fall of the Northern Sun uh, in the 12th century. But I wanted to ask kind of something about the source material for these declining number of reports of, of environmental disasters here, particularly about the nature of the documentary record, because also during these periods of more heightened, I suppose, instability, um, there are few documents being reported. So the kind of the, the blunt question would be to ask, does this fewer number of disasters being recorded reflect the fact that there are just fewer documents? Or put another way, I suppose, could you just comment on the changing number and quality of documentary sources from different time periods and how you navigated these changes in making your time series of disaster management events? Yeah, absolutely. 
as we know, as historians, we're always kind of simultaneously operating at two registers, right? One is what happened in the past, to the extent we can, we think we can say that with some degree of confidence. And another is what are what are our sources doing, right? What how well have they been preserved? What is the discursive world within they within which they were produced? Whose interests do they represent? And so on. And I think all works of history really are trying to operate at both of those registers at once. Mine certainly is. And so to step back a bit and just um, explain for, for the sake of the listeners what I'm doing methodologically, one of the core pieces of this book is a data set that I established of several thousand attestations of acts of river management, such as building or repairing levees, building or repairing drainage canals, and so on, and acts of river disasters, floods, course changes, levee breaches, and so on. And so, of course, my data set is only as good as my confidence that those attestations reflect what was happening on the river. And so I also bolster that data set, number one, with closer readings of specific documents by observers at various time periods who, you know, explained what they saw happening on the river and what kinds of policy interventions they thought were appropriate. And I also bolster it with information from um, soil cores and other environmental science information that gives me information that I wouldn't find in the historical record. So it's basically sort of three different kinds of documentary material that tend to align with each other well enough that I am making my argument with a fairly high level of confidence. And I'll also say specifically with the 8th and the 9th century, this is where going back to what we were talking about with the turning points in the river not aligning with regime changes, that's actually very helpful to me in this case, because the documentary record that suddenly starts attesting a lot more flooding occurs toward the end of the Tang regime, when things were in really chaotic shape politically, and then when rulership in North China was broken up among multiple regimes. And it is during that period that the attestation of flooding increases, which you would not expect if this is simply an artifact of more ambitious regimes you know, starting to report things more. So the Northern Song, which takes power in 960, absolutely is is known as an obsessively record-keeping regime. And yet it was prior to that, it was some decades prior to that, that the reports of floods increased. So that gives me a lot of confidence that I'm on the right track. The other thing, sort of ironically, that gives me confidence that I'm on the right track is that there is a very clear and vivid gap in the record of attestations of flooding, which precisely coincides, I mean, like to the year 
begins with the division between North and South China after the fall of the Northern Song, that's 1127, and ends immediately with the reunification of North and South China in 1276. And that's a really interesting one also, because the uh, Yuan regime, the Yuan Mongol regime, takes power in North China in um, 1234, but does not pick up record keeping again with floods on the floodplain. But the minute they, nor- you know, the year that they unify North and South China, immediately they pick up the record keeping. And when I realized that that was going on, that was another thing that gave me a lot of confidence in my attestation material. Basically, any regime that controlled the entirety of the floodplain wanted to keep careful records about the capacity of transportation from north to south using the Grand Canal, about the capacity for maintaining agriculture, uh, about the likelihood that bands of desperate environmental refugees would be roaming around the countryside, right? Every regime cared about those things. And when when it was not possible for any regime to address those kinds of challenges, which is when North and South China were divided from one another politically, they stopped keeping those records. Conversely, that makes me feel pretty confident that the records are quite good when they do exist. So so absolutely, any of us with any historical project can only go as far as we can with our records certainly, you know, in some ways, this is a challenge for any sort of quantitative history in particular, is that I think cognitively, we as people and as readers, if we see something on a map or a timeline, or we see numbers and, you know, percentages and decimal points, we tend to think that they represent some sort of accuracy. Ultimately, I'm a historian working with historical sources, but trying my best to read them, you know, um, against one another and to read different types of sources together and to draw conclusions with as much confidence as possible, you know, using those methods. Fantastic. And yeah, you, you alluded to the uh, you alluded to the natural science sources as well. The fact that you managed to gather so much from those is really supports it. You also alluded to your database, which uh, is entitled the, the Tracks of You Digital Atlas. Uh, which you co-created with Ryan uh, M. Horn. Apart from your book as well, I think this database itself is a major contribution of your scholarship. Can you just, for our listeners, tell us a little bit more about the database? Uh, I suppose, how is it created? What's its purpose? And also, where can interested parties access it? Yeah, sure. So we're preparing it currently. We're doing a final round of cleaning. I'm actually meeting with my team later this afternoon. So my hope is that this spring, maybe this summer, by that point, we'll have it publicly hosted once, like I said, we do one more round of cleaning and validation. I should say that for the book, I feel really confident in my results, but the database was not really organized in a way that makes me confident that anybody could use it and run any kind of query and get Uh, good results from it. So I I sort of organized my queries around what I knew was possible with the database in the state that it was in. And 
is kind of ironic because one of my other areas of research is about digital gazetteers, which are databases organized around named places. And the thing that I had not actually finished for the purposes of this book was the gazetteer version of the database that would allow anyone to, you know, look up any named place and see all of the floods that had affected that place, for instance. So that's what we're still working on and finishing up, but absolutely with the idea of making this publicly available as soon as possible. So basically, there's essentially two key data sources with some ancillary material organized around them. One of them, which I was just talking about, is this collection of attestations about droughts and floods and levee building and levee repairs. And those come from primary sources of known date, known provenance, known authorship, where, for instance, a local county magistrate would say, hey, the levee blew out in, you know, the following location in this county on the following date. This is the number of people who were affected. This is how I'm intending to handle the repairs. Right. And so they're basic bureaucratic documents that are part of the, you know, reporting structure of what it meant to run local government. And um, ultimately, you know, aggregating those all the way up, there's like about 3,000 or so of those kinds of attestations. And of course, some of them are fairly trivial. Some of them are about events that are really, really complex and that there are a lot of sources for. So that's one set of sources. And then the other, since, as I talked about earlier, the purpose of this book is to connect what was happening on the floodplain with what was happening on the Les Plateau. And those attestations about floods and acts of river management are all the floodplain part of the story. The Les Plateau part of the story, for the purposes of this book, is a data set about the locations and dates of founding of settlements on the Les Plateau. And that includes large cities, it includes the seats of prefectures and counties, and it also includes small settlements um, such as forts, garrisons, postal changes, you know, horse ranches, all of the things that that had to happen locally to maintain a landscape that for many centuries was a highly militarized landscape. And so by pinpointing the locations and dates of founding of those settlements on the Les Plateau, I am able to make at least a sort of strong circumstantial argument, correlation kind of argument between the intensification of human activity on the Les Plateau and the rate of flooding on the floodplain. So those are really the two basic data sources in this database. And then, again, with some ancillary materials, such as, um, for instance, I have moisture information from the Monsoon Asia Drought Atlas. There is a whole monsoon story that we have not talked about yet. Um, I have, for instance, just a simple timeline of the, you know, dates of founding and collapse of different regimes so that I can do queries that involve regime names and, and regime dates. But really, it's those two core geo-referenced data sets, the dates and locations of settlements on the Les Plateau and the dates and locations of floods and management events on the floodplain. I really look forward to exploring it. It sounds absolutely wonderful. 
and good luck with the final stages of getting that that ready. I'm going to ask one penultimate question. Your book, as we've alluded to a lot, is a highly interdisciplinary, involving uh, a lot of natural science work. One of the challenges of publishing historical work that involves so much natural sciences is that inevitably you require a lot of figures. Uh, and your book is no exception here at all. And readers will note that there are black and white figures passed throughout the text. And readers of the physical version, which I was lucky to get a copy of, will find that there are a number of plates that are printed on beautiful, glossy paper in the middle of the book as well. And I think, actually, I, I certainly am. And I think there'll be many of my colleagues who are going to be quite jealous of this. Because we've often been constrained by the number of figures that publishers are willing to print, especially those in colour, especially on the idea of using glossy paper. And I just wondered about your experience. How did you choose a publisher and how did you work with them so that they're willing to incorporate the numbers of figures that you did? And also just the fact that they're willing to publish something that is basically historical. It's a history, but it's actually also incredibly interdisciplinary and incorporates a lot of natural science. So just, yeah, something about your publisher would be lovely to hear about. Yeah. So um, I am I am grateful that uh, fairly early in my research for the book, I um, had the honor to meet James Scott, um, seeing like a state, art of not being governed, right? And it is one of the great honors of my career that he became interested in the research that I was doing. And he is very interested himself in river history. And um, so he connected me with his editor at Yale University Press and another one of the great pieces of good fortune in this story is that that editor is not an editor in the history section of the press. It's an editor in the natural history section of the press. And so it's somebody who was absolutely accustomed to charts, figures, interdisciplinary work. It's not someone who had a preconception about what this book should look like because it was written by a historian. Yale University Press, also one of the reasons I was so uh, grateful and delighted to have an introduction to that press in particular is that um, they are also well known for their art history list. And in some ways, that's very far afield from my book but it also means that they're really accustomed to dealing with color, figures, illustrations. As I got to know the editor and we sort of passed drafts of my proposal back and forth, one of the books that she gave me to look at as an exemplar is a book about the natural history of Cape Cod, which was, you know, just saturated with color and black and white illustrations. You know, I described this book as I was producing it. My objective was something that's sort of halfway to an atlas, a relatively short narrative, less than a hundred thousand word narrative, but um, with illustrations telling the story and appearing on, all, on almost every page. And I'm lucky that I had an editor who gave me an exemplar and said, is this what you're looking for? And I said, yes, exactly like that. And actually before the pandemic, we were planning on a book that would have scattered color. That is that rather than the color plates being sort of sequestered in the middle of the book as they are, they would appear throughout the book. 
And that was our original plan. But as you know, the book came out in the middle of the pandemic, there were a lot of production delays. There were a lot of supply chain issues. We all faced those throughout our lives. And the editor told me that it would likely add a lot of delays and uncertainties to production if we went with scattered color. But um, I am I am so grateful. My my levels of gratitude to um, such a range of people who, you know, supported this project along the way and moved it toward publication. I have such deep gratitude, absolutely, especially for a book that has sort of more complexities in its production than many history books do. Wonderful. I think that's some wonderful little tidbits of information that historians might find very valuable moving forward. So thank you very much for telling us, telling us that. Okay, the final question then, and I ask this to everybody. Um, what are you working on now? Uh, and what can we expect to see, read or hear about from you in the relatively near future? So the project that I'm working on that's a follow up to this book is that I've probably already given the, uh, the sense, which is correct, that the documentary source space and the previous historiography for the floodplain is much, much better than it is for the Les Plateau. And yet I'm trying to tell a story where those two halves of the history are co-equally significant and co-equally well-documented. So what I'm working on right now, with the help of, a, of a, another really super talented graduate research assistant, and let me just say also, I just talked about my gratitude towards publishers and mentors and people who helped along the way. You also mentioned uh, Ryan Horn, who was, um, at the time this book came out, my postdoctoral fellow at the Pitt World History Center that I direct. Ryan was one of uh, many really talented students and collaborators without whom I couldn't have written this book. It was a very collaborative book. Interdisciplinary also means that a lot of people with different expertise and different skills need to be involved. And quantitative and data-oriented also means that a lot of people need to be able to help with data collection, data cleaning and organization and analysis. And so um, my gratitude extends profoundly also to the um, students, postdocs, and other collaborators who made this book a reality with Ryan at the forefront, but also uh, to name a couple of other names, uh, Sharon Zhang, Shen Feng, Kai Chi Hua are all some of the students who were and continue to be profoundly involved in this process. So, so I want to really make sure that that uh, my gratitude to them is 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 clear. That goes a little bit uh, far afield from the question that you asked. Um, but my new project, which is focusing on the erosion history of the Les Plateau, I'm doing alongside a um, outstanding graduate student from Renmin University in China who's visiting with me at Pitt this year and who had a really significant background in geographic information, science, and environmental science before going back to grad school in Chinese history. And um, he is working with me in order to create a much improved data set about erosion on the Les Plateau and is starting to come out with some really outstanding results 
on the one hand, looking at uh, maps of archaeological sites on the Les Plateau, which go much further than the data that I assembled for the book, much greater depth, and then finding correlations at the at a really local level. I mean, with a sort of a grid of five kilometer squares, literally between the locations of these archaeological sites and the locations of historical erosion. So uh, we're working on an article this spring that I'm really excited about. And that's the next place that the research that spins off of this book is going. My other project, which is entirely, well, I don't know, everything's interconnected if you go far enough. Um, I just got a new round of funding from the National Endowment for the Humanities in the United States for a project of mine called the World Historical Gazetteer, which is a project to build a platform and content for working with historical place names worldwide and across all time. So it's a super, it, even the ambition level of this book pales in comparison with what I'm doing with the World Historical Gazetteer. And so in some ways that's a quite different project it's not a work of environmental history specifically. It's not really leading, at, at least at this moment, towards a historical monograph. Although I, 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 I see a book in the in the in the medium term related to it, uh, but really is you know another um, sort of manifestation of my interest in being a historian, working with spatial data sets and seeing how we can enliven the way we think about and write history if we start with structured spatial data and georeferenced information. I'm sure that'll be an incredible resource that'll be widely used by uh, historians across the globe. So thank you, Professor Mostan, for joining me for this podcast, for discussing your research past and present and into the future. Um, I also want to thank um, Sam Glee-Riemann for organising and producing this podcast. And of course, thank you, the listener, for streaming and or downloading. Uh, once again, my name is Philip Gooding, and this is the Indian Ocean World Podcast. We would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. The Indian Ocean World Podcast is produced under the Shirk-funded partnership Appraising Risk Past and Present. The podcast runs in conjunction with the annual speaker series at the Indian Ocean World Centre at McGill University, Montreal. 